Hello, I'm Will Veach, and welcome to the People Still Read Books podcast, episode 16, 17, who can remember? It is instantly tournament week, and so I'm delighted, 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 overjoyed to have as my guest this week, John Gassaway. You may know John Gassaway from his work at ESPN, writing about college basketball. He's one of the smart data analysts and writers in the college basketball world. He also used to run the old Great Big Ten Geek blog way back in the day. He is the author of the book Miracles on the Hardwood, the hope and a prayer story of a winning tradition in Catholic college basketball. It is a tell basically tells the story of college basketball through its Catholic and Jesuit institutions like Georgetown and Loyola and San Francisco and Gonzaga and Marquette. And it is a terrific book and a great history of college basketball. And if you're a fan of college basketball or if you're Catholic or both, you will really kind of love the book. John is a very lively, fun writer, and it's a great kind of history. And we also talk about, of course, our alma mater, the University of Illinois, who are playing in the NCAA tournament this week. So it's a sport, one more sports-themed podcast. Uh, we have a, a, a non-sports, and probably most non-sports moving forward, but I couldn't resist having John Gasway on for College Basketball Week. Remind you, as always, to follow us on Twitter at, at StillReadBooks. Email me, peoplestillreadbooks at gmail.com. And, uh, you know, just holler at me anytime. But anyway, so that's the show. That's not the show. I'm actually introducing the show right now. John Gasway, Miracles on the Hardwood. Here is John. It is my delight to have today John Gassaway, author of Miracles on the Hardwood, the hope and a prayer story of a winning tradition in Catholic college basketball. John, thank you for coming on and yammering with me during this this NCAA tournament week. I can't imagine how busy you are to ha- to take time. And so th- I appreciate you taking time on pub day, no less, to chat with me. On pub day, yes. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here and I do have to compliment you uh, on uh, pronouncing the whole subtitle flawlessly. It's a bit of a mouthful. So thank you, and thank you for having me. This is something I've discovered in books over the last uh, 10, 15 years. Like, usually, I've, I've generally noticed that, uh, I've had those on my books too, uh, That that is the that's basically the publisher's way of saying we're not sure enough people know the author yet to where <laughs> we need to sell this thing, make people make sure everybody looking at the book on the cover knows exactly what it's about, which I kind well, of appreciate. So my, I, you just wait till I'm a big star, and my my books will be called things like me and you know, <laughs> yeah, be, myself. And listen, like like God Save the Fan has a, a ridiculously long title that is like half of the book. So like, believe you me, I definitely know how it goes. But uh, uh, you, yours is not um, compared to mine. Like mine has like like mine is like there are actually more syllables in my subtitle than there are pages of a book. Like there are, so it's so long. So uh, anyway, uh, so it's, it is. It, so thank you for coming on. Uh, we have so much to talk about, but, but obviously I want to talk about the book first. And I have to say this is uh, for, the book is great, but. But I would argue that uh, you, you, people don't get enough credit for doing this, in my opinion. You have a terrific idea for a college basketball book. Like, this is just an outstanding college bas- idea for a college basketball book. And you have executed it, I would argue, flawlessly. But, like, I find it really – you remember that movie came out a while ago, uh, A Quiet Place? 
with yes. uh, with and and that movie was that movie was good, but more to the point, it had such a terrific idea. I was like, thank you for not screwing that up because that's a terrific idea of a movie where no one can talk. This is a terrific idea for a book. Basically, it is of course the story of college and Jesuit school, uh, excuse me, Catholic and Jesuit uh, colleges and their history with college basketball. But really, and one of the things I love the most about the book, it's really just a history of college basketball because they're so kind of intertwined. Exactly. And I can boast of what a great idea this is because I didn't have it. Uh, my, that's, what, my that's where my great it. ideas come That's where my great yeah. ideas come from, too, other people. Yeah, so I can go on and on about this. But uh, I was having a conversation with uh, someone else about this last week, and, and he put it really well. This, this uh, gives a, a through line for the whole history of college basketball. And we all recognize, you know, the Catholic uh, identity within the college basketball. It, it coheres and it's consistent across time, but you know, you can't tell the whole story of college basketball. I don't know if you were Robert Cairo, I guess you could, but uh, <laughs> it's a bit unwieldy. And to say, well, we're just going to take this little 12% slice of college basketball. And as you say, there's all kinds of, you know, uh, Bob Knight and Adolph Rupp and John Wooden in here. Uh, you, you can't swing a cat in college basketball, Catholic or otherwise, without running into those guys. So uh, really, hats off to my agent. It's, it's a nice uh, economical way of of telling a lot of college basketball stories in, in a couple hundred pages. And uh, I hope uh, I hope I did execute it well because the idea was in, it was intriguing to me, definitely. Yeah, it's definitely executed well. I also like the idea of uh, the metaphor of swinging a college cat and hitting Bob Knight. There's something <laughs> about that that I just kind of enjoy. I don't know if that has been done, but it feels like it should have been. Um, and to me, one of the things I love too, and obviously the, the thing about the book that's so nice is it ties so much of this together. But one of the things you know, I love college, I love the NBA, I love baseball, I love all these sports. But you know, to me, there is something. And I think as someone that writes about college basketball, obviously you write for ESPN, you write for uh, – yeah, I. so I will always know you as the Big Ten Geek, but uh, I know that other people uh, know you for – as that was like, you know, with your actual name. Um, but for me, you know, I – the thing I love – to me, there's something so charming about college basketball. There's something about – about college basketball speaks to me in a way that just feels like the personalities, the way they run through. And one of the things that's great about the book is so many of the great personalities of college basketball come from these Catholic schools. It come from – and wh- whether it's McGuire, whether it's John Thompson, or even when – even I, I had, the, to me, one of the best moments of the Big Ten tournament, other than Illinois' of course, total dominance of it, was uh, <laughs> the, the moment when Jawan Howard had been ejected from the game, and so they interviewed Phil Martell afterward and Phil Martelli is just like the perfect like to me that's exactly like that kind of great personality and that kind of big personality but also this deep like bone deep knowledge of the game that to me Martelli is like one of the great representatives of what we're talking about with that today and really for the past few years yes and just to close the circle at the Big Ten tournament you also had uh, Bill Raftery who is of course college basketball or Catholic college basketball personified. He was, uh, nobody knows this. I didn't know this till I started digging into this book, but he was a really good player uh, at LaSalle. He was a coach of Seton Hall. Uh, he's, he's Catholic college basketball through and through and uh, a tremendously entertaining announcer. So it's a, uh, it's a vein of the sport that's, that's full of, of colorful characters. And uh, that's what you want as a writer is just to be able to, point at uh, somebody who's interesting or a quote that's great and say, see, isn't this great? <laughs> it, it makes one's job a, a heck of a lot easier. 
And what is it about college basketball as opposed to college football, which obviously there's Catholic schools in college football, Notre Dame is everywhere, but it feels concentrated Notre Dame-wise. And one of the great things about college basketball is there are all of these schools and a lot of them in like, in like you know, in like big cities and so on. What is it about, what are the roots of the connection to the sports in these colleges? What kind of got this ball rolling in the first place? Well, Catholic schools got in on the ground floor of the sports, uh, Obviously, other colleges did, too, and they were all competing avidly against each other to uh, cultivate their their abilities in this. But the thing about the Catholic schools is they really were very serious about this, and they did focus on it at the uh, expense or to the exclusion of football. Now, obviously, that's not a, a secret recipe for being good at basketball, but it is an identity marker for these Catholic schools. Uh, Holy Cross, to <laughs> choose one example at random, <laughs> right. uh, that right. used to be good at basketball. Uh, they got rid of football early. Loyola Chicago, who we might be talking about in the coming days here, mm-hmm. uh, they got rid of football early. Uh, that, that was just kind of a, a Catholic thing to do. Even the University of San Francisco used to play football. They got rid of it. But uh, that was something that we saw from these schools. And But basketball, that was their core uh, identity. That was how they became known. Uh, obviously, everyone knows the the story of how you know Notre Dame became nationally famous as an educational institution, largely through football in the 1920s. Uh, no Catholic basketball uh, programs reached that same height necessarily, but they did become known. They did get their names out there, particularly once the NIT and the NCAA uh, tournaments came online in the 1940s. And then people did start talking about, well, hey, here are these uh, here are these Catholic programs. And St. John's made a, a name for itself very early for being good at, at basketball. And uh, it was it was what they were able to do and how they were able to get their names out there. And I think at that point, it kind of became a self-perpetuating thing uh, where people thought of them for basketball and then they started thinking of themselves for basketball and they uh, they became pretty good at it. How was the connection between the academic or even the uh, theological aspect of the, some of these universities and uh, and basketball? Did they always so peacefully coexist? I remember when uh, Rick Majerus late well, was coach of SLU and he gave his opinion about abortion one time and it caused him a considerable headache right, right. Uh, um, among his school. I am curious, uh, how has that kind of gone? Uh, has that trans- how it was like that beginning and how's it kind of transitioned as the years have gone along? Yeah, there have been some attempts over the over the years to, you know, find the reasons for why Catholic schools are good at basketball in in scripture or <laughs> in in the beliefs of of the Jesuits and I don't necessarily make light of those or or say that, you know, those are those are misbegotten efforts, but I do think that um, those are kind of above the pay grade those uh, those searches of you know what we come to, to college basketball to do, which is to you know experience sport in all its manifold wonder. And these are so much larger questions where, where we're talking about real uh, you know doctrinal matters. So it's obviously a cultural affinity. I will say that and it you know you don't have to be Catholic to have that cultural affinity and that's something I try to get at in the introduction is that, you know, ironically, we see the same 
cultural affinity for college basketball in what some people would think of as the opposite of Catholicism, you know, good, uh, hearty Midwestern Protestant stock, uh, <laughs> not in large cities. But, you know, both of these uh, populations that we think of as so very different, they love their college basketball and they did early and they take it seriously <laughs> and there's a rivalry between them. Uh, and it's just really interesting to me to follow the, the Catholic uh, variant of that story and say, you know, kind of starts here in the, in the 20s and 30s and, and goes through the NIT. And for about 20 years, they, the Catholic programs generally uh, preferred the NIT to the NCAA tournament. And then how did that change in the 50s? Uh, these were questions that I always had just as a college basketball fan. And uh, I, I found a way of, of attacking those and, and coming up with some answers uh, within the pages of this book. So uh, it was uh, it was a fun experience. And I hope that comes through in the pages. Yeah, it, it, it does. And it's funny because, you know, this to me, one of the things that the book reminded me is how much I do kind of love a lot of these schools, even without always necessarily putting them like I, my parents are Catholic. I am not Catholic, but my parents are Catholic. And and uh, and so my, I remember my mother being very excited when Villanova, she would love Sister Jean. Everybody loves Sister Jean. I will love Sister Jean until round two of the NCAA tournament <laughs> in which sister and then, then sister Jean and I are going to have, are gonna, I, I hopefully we won't come to blows, but no. certainly uh, um, we well, will. I, I don't, I don't think it would go well for you if you were seen in a public setting coming to blows with sister Jean. I, I think you would probably be uh, taken away and blamed before she is. That's more to the, more to the point. I, I think I would lose <laughs> like, <laughs> like not to put too fine a point on it. Uh, but uh, certainly, you know, uh, I think of there's something, you know, college football, basketball, and I want to talk about this in like a larger sense, like college basketball. To me, I've always joked that uh, as much as any sport, sports are by nature kind of totalitarian, and like they're they're all like zero sum game. You win or you lose. You're you're happy or you're sad. But like one of the things I've always loved about college basketball, it is the only. It's certainly the only uh, uh, collegiate sport compared to like uh, obviously with college football. Like I love one of the things I always love the conference tournaments, even though in a year like this year where you could have made an argument against them, is. Like no matter what, if like anyone can win, all you have to like, and we play, and, and you all you have to do is not lose. And they play it everywhere. They play it in New York. They play it in in Texas. They play it in Alaska. I guess not since Trajan Trajan Langdon left, but I believe they once played it in Alaska. Um, and uh, and they you know they play it in the depths of Louisiana and farm country Nebraska and 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 they obsess about it in Iowa and in Queens and in and in Westwood. And you know, to me, that is one of those things I've always loved about college basketball. And to me, the 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 Catholic and the Jesuit schools are so kind of wrapped up in that charm, uh, and whether it's Raftery, whether it was, whether it was McGuire uh, uh, back in the days, and even guys or like Majerus or Massimino. Uh, and I'm curious when I think of like the big the big coach of these schools now, I like I we all like I think we all like Jay Wright and we you know and Mark Few and some of this, but it really does feel like the big personality coaches came from an earlier era. Someone that writes about the sport now, and I don't mean just at Catholic and Jesuit schools, do you think, like, first off, college basketball na- uh, coaches by nature are more sane than college football coaches. Like, college football coaches, I don't even want to meet any of those people. <laughs> but college basketball coaches, there's always been more humanity to it. But it does feel at a certain level that, like, there is... Do you, f- do you feel that, like, those big personalities of the past are still there today, or has the whole thing kind of become a little bit more corporatized? Well, when you're talking about, you know, Jay Wright and Mark Few, who by virtue of the tremendous success of their programs have become the the figureheads of 
you know, Catholic college basketball, it's, you know, is it a coincidence or is it, is it a uh, feature of the machine that those two guys are the most chill, relaxed people <laughs> yeah. you'll ever see. If you remember the very famous uh, camera trained on right, of course. when the game-winning shot was hit in the 2016 title game, uh, he literally like wiped his brow and trudged down. His <laughs> it's insane. Uh, I was there, and that is not what I was doing. That is no. absolutely not what I was doing. No. So, uh, you know, it's interesting that these are the two leading lights of Catholic basketball, and it, it would lead us to, you know, speculate, okay, why is this? But it, it could be accidental. And in terms of, you know, why are, are basketball coaches more this way than college football coaches? It has long been, you know, my mission on social media to fling this idea out there, hoping that somebody smarter with more time will pick it up. My theory is that, you know, college football coaches in the United States are the craziest uh, <laughs> leaders of any sport in any country. <laughs> it cannot be the money involved because what those what college football coaches make is a fraction of what you make as a premier league manager, for example. And most of those guys visually are relatively sane. You know, if you watch Pep Guardiola or somebody like that, you know, they're, they're not marching and, and stomping around like college football coaches. So that's, that's outside my purview. I don't know why they're crazy, but in general, the Catholic basketball strain of coach has been, uh, had a little bit more perspective, had a little bit more of a wry sense of humor and, and a gleam in their eye than your your stereotypical uh, Bob Knights or your, your field general uh, types um, who, who are coming from outside of the Catholic tradition. Obviously, there are huge exceptions. Obviously, there are super chill basketball coaches at non-Catholic institutions. And I would be remiss if I didn't say, hey, John Thompson, a very successful yeah. Catholic coach, uh, he could be a bit intimidating. He could be a <laughs> yes. bit you know, serious <laughs> at times. So these are not tri tried and true rules uh, by any means. But uh, it does seem like these are tendencies in these directions. And uh, I, I tried to uh, I, I tried to to pay attention to those and to uh, document them as, as best I could in the book. What's the best story that you learned from this? Or give me, give me, give me one of your best stories that you, that you learned from this. That because uh, that to me that's one of the things. Because like I know like Al McGuire, like Al McGuire is obviously this big figure in the history of college basketball and uh, this big beloved figure. But I still feel like there were three or four good anecdotes about him that I'd never heard before. Oh, what he, was your favorite one that you heard? He was a human anecdote machine. And the, <laughs> one, the one that I loved uh, for anybody who doesn't uh, know the biography of Al McGuire who won a national championship with Marquette in 1977. And then, you know, he had announced beforehand that he was going to retire that season. So how cool is that? I mean, talk about le le leaving on a high point. Yeah. Like but, a Tony La Russa that people like. Yeah, no, it's perfect. <laughs> but he was, uh, he was a New Yorker uh, born and bred and his, uh, his parents uh, had a tavern in, in Queens, uh, Rockaway actually. And he grew up there and he's, he was a tough guy. He, he got a cup of coffee in the NBA in the fifties. And he liked to say, you know, I stay in the league three years by starting fights and diving over press tables, you know, very <laughs> Al McGuire thing to say. <laughs> and uh, sure enough, you know, comes the 1970s and a uh, very different generation of player. And he's, he's coaching these players at Marquette and his assistant coaches are, 
the aforementioned Rick Majerus, uh, then very young, and a guy named Hank Raymonds. And, uh, you know, Al, he, he lived the good life. He enjoyed being famous. And this particular day in 1973, he arrived, you know, about 45 minutes late to practice wearing a three-piece suit. And there was a fight between players, uh, between a scrappy uh, reserve and, and a star player. And, and Raymonds and Majerus were trying to pull these players apart. And McGuire breezes in and, and he says words to the effect of, if anybody thinks that they're tough enough to start a fight, you can come right ahead and start it with me. You know, meaning, you know, I, I was a I was a saloon keeper's son and this scrappy little reserve, he he <laughs> reared back and he punched McGuire. Right between the <laughs> <eyes>. <laughs> and McGuire reacted with visceral adrenaline <laughs> and shouted USOB and pretty soon there was a brawl between the coach and the reserve the reserve of course was immediately horrified and thought he was going to be kicked off the team but McGuire said ah, forget about it um, that was a big hush hush scandal and uh, Jimmy Breslin if anybody can hate their <laughs> wow. journalism influences back that far he got that exclusive and he told that story at that year's final four just a, a great tale feels like jimmy breslin's the right guy to get that exclusive too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um okay i want to talk about this tournament a little bit specifically i want to talk about illinois our illini our beloved illinois final Illini. what year did you graduate from the university of illinois uh i stayed there in grad school and i left in the uh in the 1996 area so i okay. saw a lot of uh good basketball and a lot of bad basketball and uh, I am loving the the current moment very much. Yeah, I graduated in 97 and uh, uh and barely. So <laughs> there was no postgraduate work uh for me. So yeah, I my, my favorite story of being there uh, I covered the team for the Daily Illini and I was there when Lou Hinson left and Lon Kruger came in. And the first question that I, I was a sports editor at the Daily Illini, so Lon Kruger was trying to show that he was going to be cool with the students. And so he gave the first I got the first interview, sorry Lauren Tate. But the first interview goes to Daily Illini guy over here, and uh, and and I asked him. So, what what are your? Do you have thoughts on the chief? Like, like you've thought like that's actually a big thing here. Do you have any thoughts on the chief? He's like, what do you mean? I said, you know, the chief. You know, like, are you pro chief? He's like, I, I, I'm like the chief. I'm like, you know, the mascot. He's like, oh, the oh, wait, the people don't like him. I was like, oh, so welcome to the University of Illinois. Uh, yes, uh, it's a it's a bit of a thing here. And he was uh, so, and it was a good reminder that like it always reminds me a little bit when Underwood was hired and like Whitman, Josh Whitman, the Illinois athletic director, had never met him. And it's like you just remember, like in this world of college basketball, all this stuff kind of comes in. But I'm curious as someone that you know that runs these. There was one of the things that's really really fun for me is you know to watch uh uh to watch this Illinois team not only be good but to be fun and like to have like for Illinois to have a guy like Andre Curbelo to me we never have guys like Andre Curbelo like that's the other teams like LSU gets fun guys like that like West Virginia gets fun guys like that for Illinois to have a, a guy like that on the team that's been good it's just been total total joy yeah, and hats off to Underwood to uh, give players the freedom to do that because, you know, visually Underwood looks like your, your standard, you know, field general, uh, you know, angry guy. Don't get him mad. Um, but My dad he, thinks he looks like Fred Flintstone. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Yeah, he, he could uh, he, he could <laughs> definitely tip the car over. At, at yeah, driving. exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but yet Curbelo and, and Io are out there, you know, having fun and being effective at the same time. And that's what uh, all 
coaches uh, strive for. Uh, there was a coach uh, in in the book named Doggy Julian at, at Holy Cross with Bob Cousy, uh, who did the same thing. Plugging my book here, but uh, you know he was he was yelled at by uh, Adolph Rupp when they ran a coaching clinic because he let Bob Cousy pass behind his back, and Adolph Rupp was like, "What are you What are you teaching these guys?" <laughs> uh, but it was it was effective, and the players loved it. So when when you can marry that, you know, efficacy with with player freedom, it's it's beautiful. And uh, knock on wood, that's what we're seeing so far uh, from Illinois. It, it, it's fun to be cool for a change. Uh, it's, uh, <laughs> that that has been a long, long time. I find it telling, though, and you know, this has often been a criticism of college basketball, right? The idea that you know, an NBA coach is a I'm just trying to show the players support and under, I understand that they are in charge. And so if I can figure out how to, how to make that work with the system that, uh, that, then that works worse than college basketball. Like there's always the joke that if you watch, if you see a preview for an NBA game, they're showing players. But if you often, you see a preview for a college basketball game, they're showing coaches. And this has been a criticism of the game, particularly as, as cause there's been more and more player empowerment in the NBA and college basketball has come under more and more scrutiny for the idea of, of, uh, of, of the fact that the players aren't being paid and all the other issues with the sport. And I do find it interesting, you know, the, the whole idea of, like I watched Hoosiers the other day and I spent the whole time thinking, wow, what an asshole. Like right. no one would ever listen to this guy now. And I, and I feel like th- that kind of positivity of now seeing someone like Underwood, who you're right, feels like, like your old Gene Katie or Judd Heathcote, or right. obviously that whole Bud, uh, Bob Nighttime. It feels like even the hard-ass coaches have understood, oh, this is the way, not the way the game works now. You know who, here's an example from totally out of left field, uh, you know, not Catholic, not Big Ten, <laughs> but somebody who seems like an NBA-style coach who gets tremendous success at the college level. I would point to Leonard Hamilton at Florida mm-hmm. State. Uh, he seems like a really uh, steady guy, uh, not that you would ever you know, think it would be wise to cross him by any means, but I mean, he, he does not caper and stomp about. Uh, He seems like he's got his players backs and they seem like they play with the confidence and uh, you know, the freedom that comes from knowing that. And I I just think that's a, that's a good way to go. Uh, I I don't like it when I hear college players referred to as kids. I think that comes with baggage that, you know, it's okay to act a certain way in front of them that I'm not sure it is. Okay. I think these are adults and you know, they, they should be treated as such. And uh, a guy like Leonard, Leonard Hamilton, just to throw a compliment at random, he he seems like he's, uh, he's very much in that vein. When you look at this tournament, as we as we just go into the actual tournament itself, um, this feels like it's it's funny how already I, I you ever realize it's been two years since there's been the tournament. One thing when your book actually ends with the lack of the tournament last year, I prefer to talk about last year's cancellation of the tournament the way I talk about <clears throat> the cancellation of the 1994 World Series, which is to say I don't talk about it at all. Exactly, <laughs> and I just pretended it did not happen. Right. Uh, but certainly, uh, it's amazing how quickly once we got the bracket, I uh, like. I, everyone got back into oh 12-5. What's the what's the 12-5? I feel like it used to be 14-3. It's 12-5 now. Like 12-5 feels like the the one that everybody picks. But also how quickly everyone kind of settled into okay, Gonzaga, Illinois, Baylor, Alabama. <laughs> like it felt almost immediately that that like just all of a sudden Alabama was the one that popped out. I'm curious 
do you, you don't have to make any predictions or anything. I'm sure that, that you have enough to do, do with that all day. But, you know, it feels like already in a normal year, which is to say not one where there's having a pandemic and all in one place and a team could just randomly fall off the board tomorrow. I wrote in a piece last week about how Kelvin Sampson, uh, the coach of Houston, said early on in the year, which I don't know if a coach is supposed to do this, but said all of our players have already had COVID. So we're actually not sweating this too much. I feel like you probably shouldn't say that. But hey, there's something not to worry about with Houston, I guess. <laughs> I mean, it's just weird to think of in the story. And just the idea that Louisville is like, hmm, hmm, okay, Virginia Tech, don't you think that maybe, don't you want to go eat indoors? Wouldn't you love to go eat indoors? <laughs> like, just like the weirdness of like, you know, the whole, the whole, the whole thing being put together this year it feels like there's there's so much like randomness in any other year anyway it feels like of all years because i feel like there's like this it seems like there's clear four number one seeds and clear four number two seeds but this year more than any other feels like this could be like total chaos yeah this yeah year. no and we because there's been a one-year lull I think, you know, we think we've really got it figured out now and we're so smart analytically. (laughs) We've got more and better information than we've ever had before, which, by the way, is true. But the the nature of the event itself is chaos. And, you know, our brackets will be ruined and there, there will be absolute, you know, crazy surprises so you know just when we think we've we've really got it all you know plotted down to a t uh that that's when the that's when the crazy stuff happens and you know i can't wait that's that's what i like about march um i was you know thank goodness the 2018 tournament for example happened and there was not a pandemic and we could be in a workspace together you know breathing on each other i was there with my colleagues you know at the end of what had been a boring friday night when umbc beat virginia and it was glorious it was like every 1940s newspaper movie I've ever seen. You know, all of a sudden, you know, it was stop the presses and people were running and screaming and I was a part of it. And, you know, that's that's what I want to happen as a college basketball fan. That's what I want to happen as a professional that writes about college basketball. I want stuff like that where I say, you know, you remember that? And everybody says, yeah, this is this is where we were. That's what I'm hoping for from this tournament. It could come from Gonzaga winning a national championship, you know, something no, nobody's been able to do for 45 years. Uh, it could be any number of things, but I want something like that. Uh, that that's what I want from March. I want constant upsets, except for the Midwest bracket where Illinois wants through. There's someone was asking the other day, like, would it be better? Uh, what, what do you? Because Illinois, Illinois bracket has it seems to be awfully tough on their side, but potentially okay for them if they can get into the Elite Eight. That seems like, again, these are all just, this is all like, oh, I've got it figured out. I know the pattern. And then they'll just complete dissolve into chaos. But it's funny. People have asked me like, so what do you want? How do you want Illinois to, to, to win? Like, do you have a preference? I'm like, nope. <laughs> nope. Just go. Just go. That's all I want from the, it's, of course, for those of you who don't know, every 16 years, it is remarkable, by the way, that every 16 years that Illinois has a team like this, but, uh, but here we are. But, you know, that's that's exactly what everybody does want is, you know, as fans, we want upsets and chaos everywhere except where our team is. 
And when when you've been that higher seed, which of course we haven't been for a long time, but I, I do remember the feeling of when you are the higher seed and the and you're behind a plucky lower seed and the entire rest of the country is rooting for that <laughs> yes. team. That yep. is the worst feeling in the world, yeah. you know, and you you get surly and yeah. you get primal and yeah. you're like, you know, you know, how yeah. dare you rest of the country not you know realizing that's exactly what you yourself do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You suddenly become like the bad guy in like an 80s movie that like runs like the apartment complex that's trying to like everyone is rooting against you. You're trying to kick out the kids and you don't realize that you're that until then. Um, okay, so um, uh, last thing I, I want to ask you because it's a question we ask for everyone. Uh, everyone, this is your first book. Congratulations, by Thank the you. way. This is your first book. When did you get? Uh, uh, when did you get your first? Like when did you open your unboxing? When did you did you have your unboxing moment where they they sent him? I've not happened yet. How lucky! I'm just reminding everyone that my book How Lucky comes out in May. Um, I have not had this yet. My my hardcovers have not come yet. I've got, got a couple guys. I haven't got any hardcovers yet. Did you get an unboxing? What what did it feel like yeah. when you held it in your yeah, hands for my, the first time? My unboxing came uh, nine days ago. Not that I was uh, keeping track. Or, no, I'm of course. Sorry. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. Sixteen days. I was a week off. No, sixteen days ago it came. And uh, it was just lying there on the front step, uh, you know, very pandemic. Uh, there was no doorbell ring or nothing. And we just looked out and there had been a couple false alarms waiting for the unboxing moment, you know, and we'd see a box and like, <laughs> these are plates. Right. This sucks. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> Is that it? Oh, no. You know, it's, it's my it's my son's new shoes. <laughs> Darn it. It's, it's, it's the medicine I need to survive. This stinks. <laughs> it, it didn't look big enough to be <laughs> books. So, uh, yeah, that was uh, that was very nice. And then it, it just so happens that uh, the, the cover for my particular book, which I had zero to do with, uh, is really amazing. So just to to pop it open and, and to see uh, lots of those uh, neatly stacked, uh, it was it was a good moment. So uh, thank you for asking. That, that's a that's a good question. Yeah, the unboxing was 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 nice. Well, the book looks great. It is great. John Gassaway, the book is Miracles on the Hardwood. That's all the matter. That is a good enough title. It does not need any extra words. It is no. a terrific title and Stop it's a terrific there. cover. Yeah. And bookstores everywhere. Well, book, well, not bookstores everywhere because indie bookstores will, like, the pandemic will be 50 years in the past and indie bookstores will still not be open. Uh, they are they are, the, they are the most closed stores. Uh, but you can get it through bookstore, you can get it through Amazon, get whatever books are sold except for independent bookstores which are not open. But you can get them through bookstore or get them through the website. It is a terrific book, Miracle on the hardwood john thank you for uh thank you for a coming on and b dealing with the constant direct messages you're going to get during illinois games for the next month will thank you so much for having me and uh let's let's go out and uh, win that championship that's uh, I'm, you know what i'm doing the best i can if i have to if, if i have to just like i'm just saying mark few buffets are great Buffets are great right before the national. <laughs> you might want to consider that karaoke cave after all. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, honestly, yeah, you, yeah. you know what? Yeah, poor, poorly ventilated rooms. Do you, do you ever want to start like a poker game? Let's go have like a poker game. And like a poker. <laughs> um, okay, the book is Miracles on the Hardwood. John Gasway. Uh, that is the This is the People's Silver Books podcast. Next week, our guest, by the way, is Margaret Coker, who is the author of The Spy Master of Baghdad, which also has a subtitle. Not to say that people don't know who Margaret Coker is. I'm just saying. These, this is what I've discovered. Uh, the Spy Master of Baghdad, a true story of bravery, family, and patriotism in the battle against ISIS. She is our guest next week. But our guest today, John Gasway, Miracles in the Hardwood. Have a good week. Enjoy the tournament. Go Illini. Bye. Bye.